0: Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, Lord, help us to hold confidence and boast in our hope that is your Son. Lord, help us to see the need of your Son. For those that aren't Christians this morning, for those that aren't saved, God, help them to realize that. Pull on their hearts to see that for a first time, Lord. For those that have put their faith and trust in you, Lord, help them to remind and, and renew that faith and confidence in the only hope we have, which is your Son. God, as we go through this passage this morning, I pray that we see your Son through every page. We see the need for the cross in, in every portion of Scripture. We see that the meta narrative of Scripture points to what was done on the cross for us. Lord, I thank you for this morning. pray that you're with us. Open our minds, open our hearts, Lord, to the truth that is in your word. Amen. Now please turn to Exodus chapter 19. We've been studying the book of Exodus throughout um, all the church, and here Sunday mornings, and with the youth, too. And and so I've been, been... engaged with this book and reading this book. And as I was going through this book, one verse just kind of jumped out at me and caught my eye. Don't turn there. Turn to Exodus 19. I just want to read this verse real quick. It's in Exodus 14, verse 31, which says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. The ten plagues, the the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the most powerful army in the world they were eyewitnesses of this amazing display of God's lordship and power so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord the bible is consistent in that saving faith is that faith throughout the whole bible old testament including those that are saved are saved by grace through faith but this First jumped out at me at the last part of it. It says, And they believed in the Lord, and in his, or in his servant, Moses. It's a lofty statement about Moses. It made me think, what is Moses' role in the Bible? I started thinking about it and realized he has a big role in the Bible. And so today... I want to ask that question: What is Moses' role when it comes to the meta-narrative of Scripture, that, that term that we've been using and been going over Sunday mornings, meta-narrative, the large story of all Scripture. What is Moses' role in it? And I want to answer in a, a four-part sermon. Four parts are these: The treaty, the command, the sin. And the intercessor. The treaty, the command, the sin, and the intercessor. And we'll start with the, the treaty. Chapters in Exodus 19 through through twenty-four is the establishment of the, the Mosaic covenant, the law of God. And it starts with the the treaty, a treaty with Israel. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. It says in verse 1 on the third day, or I'm sorry, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. God here is going to make a treaty with Israel. And he's going to follow a particular pattern. It was a, a popular pattern in the ancient near east. It was called the suzerain vassal treaty. Suzerain vassal treaty is a uh, superior subordinate covenant. Suzerain is a Hittite word for ruler. In this treaty, a gracious ruler or a gracious suzerain makes an agreement with a subordinate, a vassal. Someone underneath him. The suzerain ruler is is saying, here's the terms of the the treaty. Here's the agreement. Take it or leave it. And there's five aspects that you see in a suzerain vassal, vassal treaty. And we have them in the scripture right here. A preamble, a historical prologue, the stipulations of the treaty, the blessings if those stipulations are held, and the acceptance in a solemn assembly. So let's just go through them real quick. The preamble, the summoning of the suzerain, the summoning of the king, is in verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. God calls the the nation of Israel, two things here, the house of Jacob, and this is kind of highlighting Israel's humble beginnings. Israel, at one point, was one man. Jacob, a mama's boy, wasn't the firstborn. His life was mostly a mess. He was scared of his older brother. God's saying, this is what you once were, but now the people of Israel. A great nation, at least in size at this point. So that's a preamble. It goes to the historical prologue, the relationship that the suzerain has with the vassal. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did uh, to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You, you yourself have seen. There are many reasons why God brought Israel to Egypt. To save Jacob's family when there were just the twelve in the famine, Brought them there so Israel, the twelve, could grow into a mighty nation by protecting them, living inside Egypt as Egypt protected them and fed them, and they would grow and grow and grow. That Moses would be trained by Pharaoh's household, the man that would become the leader of Israel. But the number one reason the Bible makes very clear why God brought Israel to, to Egypt is to display God's glory to the earth. Exodus 9, 16 says, But for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh. This is why you are keen. To show you my power. So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The whole earth may know my name. And this includes Israel. That's why it says in 19, verse 4, You yourselves have seen, eyewitnesses, what I did to Egypt, the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Israel, you are my people. You are mine. So here's the stipulations, the third part of the treaty. Verse 5. Now, therefore, if... Important word there. If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if you do this, then, the fourth part, blessings, then the blessings. Then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Here's a blessing, that they would be God's treasured possessions. They'd be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, meaning they would display who God is. Among all the people, they'd be a witness to the world. They would stand out. They'd look different than the world. They'd be a light on the hill that testifies to God's glory. God here is establishing the Mosaic Covenant, which differs from the Abrahamic Covenant, which we saw in Genesis, the promise that God gave to Abraham. The Abrahamic Covenant was more a, a unilateral agreement, or, yeah, Yuna meaning one way. God saying, I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation. The Mosaic covenant is, is more a bilateral agreement. If you obey me, then you'll be my treasured possession. You'll receive the blessings. And the last part of the treaty is the acceptance in a solemn assembly. Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. All that God says, we will do. We will obey him. We will listen to him. We accept the treaty. We will keep his law. We will keep his commands. My question as I was studying this this week is, what was the purpose of this treaty? Why establish the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law? What was God doing? Pastor Brent is going to elaborate on this question a lot more next week, and um, I just wanted to give a couple quick reasons why. One was to set a hedge around God's people. That would be separate from the world. They wouldn't be able to intermingle with the world and worldly things. Also, to be a witness to the world, in Israel's separation of the world, it reveals what God is like, that he's a holy God that's separated. That's not like the world. Israel is supposed to be a witness of God to the world. But here's something to keep in mind. I think a lot of Christians get this wrong. The Mosaic Law was never meant to save people. It was never meant to save people. I think Christians think, a lot of Christians at least, that if if you don't make it with the law, then your, your second choice is grace. You turn to grace. After you tried with the law, you failed, you turn to grace. Or, Israel had their chance with the law, they blew it, therefore they need grace now. Now, the truth is, our condition is much worse than that. We are born into sin. We are born sinners. We are born spiritually dead. So why the Mosaic, law, the Mosaic Law, then? If God knew man was just going to fail, well, here's the number one reason. God gave the law, the Mosaic Covenant, to show his people that they are sinners and therefore are in need of a Savior. The law was to expose sin, to show the true condition man is born into. To point to a need for a Savior. This is what Galatians 3.19 says. Why the law? This is, this, Paul's asking the same question. Why then the law, the Mosaic law, why? It was added because of transgressions. Because man was a sinner. And he elaborates this in verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian, our schoolmaster, our tutor. Until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith, the law is a mirror showing our true condition, spiritually dead sinners. It reveals man's utter sinfulness, inability to save himself, desperate need for a savior, Law's main purpose is to point Israel and us to Jesus, our only hope of salvation. So that's the treaty. The next part is the command. God says, All right, you, you obey my voice. Well, here, here's my voice. Here's my command. Here's my law. Exodus 20, verse 1. Turn there. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Remember who I am and the salvation I have given. God is speaking to Israel at this point and gives ten commandments. First commandment, no polytheism. You shall have no other gods before me. Israel was called to be radically monotheistic. Mono meaning one theos, a Greek word for God. One God. Radical because no civilization at this time believed in one God. They all were polytheistic, mini-gods. Israel was called to be a light on a hill to the whole world. To reveal reality. To reveal reality that there is only one true God. And all other gods are false. Made up. Second commandment. No images or idols of God or any other gods. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Israel is called to be radically different than the world again. Israel's God was a God... Who was to be heard and not seen? Heard. No man made images of God. Because God has given us images. There are images of God. One man. Man is made in the image of God. It's a distorted image because of sin, but yet an image. Thankfully, we have Jesus, who's the ultimate image of God, a perfect image of God. You want to know what God is like? Read the New Testament about Jesus. That is what God is like. The point of this command is God will be the one who reveals himself. We can't say what God is like unless God has revealed it. Verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, am, or for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. This is a bold statement right here. Idolatry is equal to hatred of God. And idolatry, which always leads to sin, and we sin because of idolatry, affects other people affects those that are around us, especially those that are, that are close to us it's a lie to say that my sins only affect me. verse six, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The third commandment, not using god 's name in vain, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We are called to have a reverence for God's name. God's name represents who God is, what God has revealed to us about him, his character, his deeds. We are blessed that God has revealed himself to us. And to misrepresent God's revealed name is a major sin. We should not use God's name in such a way as to bring disgrace upon the character or deeds of God. A reverence for who God is for his name and what he's revealed to us about him. Fourth commandment. Keep the sabbath, verse 8. Remember the sabbath day to keep it holy. 6 days you are you shall labor And do um, all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons, or your daughter, or your male servants, or your female servants, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Sabbath day, a day of rest. Keep the Sabbath day holy, meaning resting and worshiping the Lord. There's two things the Sabbath did. One, it looked backwards to God's good creation. And the seventh day, him resting and enjoying that good creation. The grace of God for creating. But two, it looked forward to the rest we would find, or Israel would find, in Christ. And a side note, this is the only commandment that's not re- re-established in the New Testament. In fact, it is nullified in Colossians two, sixteen through seventeen, it says, Therefore, let no man pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to festival or a new moon, or a sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now this is highly debated, but I personally don't believe. We are call, or we have to uh, keep a Sabbath day by the law um, there are those that I highly respect that disagree with that and is, it's argued but here's two requirements for everyone for sure in the New Testament one we are required to meet regularly with other Christians in worship it's a requirement Hebrews 10 tells us that I would say at least weekly modeled by the new uh, the um, early church, which met more than just weekly. The r- reason we meet on Sundays and not Saturdays is because the Apostle in the early church modeled it, calling it the Lord's Day, because that's the day Jesus was raised from the dead. So we're required to come together and worship together, and to neglect that is a sin. Second, Everyone is commanded, in the New Testament and the Old, to find rest in Jesus Christ every day. By not working for their salvation, but instead repenting and trusting in Jesus as their Savior. Trusting in His work and resting from trying to work for their own salvation. fifth commandment honoring parents verse 12 honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the lord your god is giving you sixth commandment murder verse 13 you shall not murder seventh commandment adultery verse 14 you shall not commit adultery eighth commandment stealing Verse 15, you shall not steal. Ninth commandment, bearing false witness. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Tenth commandment, coveting. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's um, house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servants, or his female servants, or his ox, or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. These are the Ten Commandments spoken to all the people of Israel. After this, Moses went up to the mountain of God himself, and God gave him the civil laws you find in chapter 21 through 24 for Israel themselves as a civilization. So the first part, the treaty, following that, the commands, and then the third part, the sin, the sin. Turn to chapter 32. give you some context to what's going on here. These are This is days after God has spoke the Ten Commandments. Moses is up the mountain. He's been up there for a while talking with God. Verse 30, or, or chapter 32, verse 1 says this, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us, As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. People saw that Moses was delaying, that he was up the mountain for a while. Maybe their assumption was that he was dead. God's display of glory and holiness was scary, and they were right in front of it on this mountain. And they were told not even to approach the mountain or touch the mountain. And Moses went up into that, and they haven't seen him. So, they tell Aaron, Make us gods who shall go before us. Obviously breaking the first two commandments. The first, you shall have no other gods before me. The second, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. They tell Aaron, Make us a god. Verse 2, So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Ironically and sadly, this is the gold that God has blessed the Israelites with as they were leaving Egypt. God put on the hearts of the Egyptians just to hand over all their wealth. This is an amazing thing within itself. And so they left with a bunch of gold and silver and, and jewelry. And through God's blessings, they use it to make an idol. Verse 3. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Probably modeling it after the the calf-like God or the bull-like God in Egypt. Aaron uh, doing what he has learned in a pagan country makes an idol. In the second part of verse 4, it says, And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. It's not super clear exactly what's going on in here, but there's some kind of secretism that's going on. Synchronism is a combination of, of different beliefs. And we see Aaron and the Egyptians or the Israelites taking the Egyptian god, the golden calf, and then throwing a feast to the Lord. For most of your Bibles, it's Lord is all, probably in all caps, meaning that's the name for God, Yahweh. Aaron doesn't abandon Yahweh as God. He still holds some convictions. Yet he wanted to please the people. So he tried to find a middle ground. Here's the problem. There is no middle ground. God's made this clear. Idolatry is equal to hatred of God. Aaron and the Israelites broke the first and second commandment. And by using God's name with pagan worship, they broke the third too. They used God's name in vain. Misrepresenting his name, his character, his deeds to this golden calf. Why would they do this? And why make a golden calf and call it God? It seems so stupid. It's an appropriate word, stupid, for this especially after all they saw, the plagues that that came down, the miraculous event of the Red Sea parting and and crushing on the most powerful army in the world. God's glory displayed on this mountain in front of them. And they make a golden calf. I believe verse 6 gives us a clue why. Verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and burnt peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Rose up to play. One commentator said that that Hebrew word that is translated play allows for the inclusion of drunken and immoral activities so common to fertility cults in their time Secretism, the mixture of different beliefs, had robbed the people of all ethical alertness and moral discernment. Secretism robbed, this worship of this, this false god robbed the people of ethical alertness and moral discernment. They made this god, the calf, that promoted sexual immorality instead of forbidding it. Calf was just a way of suppressing the truth. Talked about this with Pharaoh. Suppressing the truth that was obvious in front of him. The Israelites are doing the same thing by worshiping this calf. They're suppressing the truth that should have been plain to them. They're suppressing God's command, which says fornication is wrong. They're suppressing God's moral standards. So that Israel could rise up and play. Without feeling guilty so they can fornicate what they truly worship was fleshly desires. Now don't get me wrong, the golden calf was an idol, but the idol of the heart, what they truly worshiped over God, that word worship meaning what was worth more to them than God. I believe two things: worship of self, pride. they wanted a God that they could handle. A God they could see, a finite God that wasn't beyond them. They wanted to be like other nations in their pride and self-worship, so they modeled a God that looked like gods of the other nations, in particular Egypt. But also, they worshipped fleshly desires. They wanted to fornicate. And the golden calf helped them suppress the truth. ...of God and His demands. With that, they embrace foolishness. They embrace stupidity. Psalms 106 says, in verse 18... ...talking about this event... ...they made a calf in Horeb... ...and worshipped a metal image. That's just stupid within itself. They worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God... For an image of an ox that eats grass. The glory of God that was displayed to them in a miraculous way. In many different ways. They said, we don't want it, we want this ox. This is stupidity. 21 says, They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Wonderful works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Paul picks up on this theme and quotes Psalms 106 in Romans 1. That's where we get that idea. We talked about the suppress- suppression of the truth. In Romans 1, verse 21, he says, For although they knew God... Who, who's the they? For although they knew God... Man, everyone, us... Every single human being, although they knew God through his creation, through his graciousness, through what can be known of him and what he's created, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Then he quotes Psalms 106 saying, "...and exchanged the glory of the immortal, infinite God... For images resembling mortal, finite man and birds and animals and creepy things. In Israel's case, it was a golden calf, suppressing the truth by saying, This golden calf is our God. He wants us to fornicate. Therefore, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I mean, this is ridiculous. Sure, glad we don't worship idols today. What are our golden calves today? Stick with me here. Listen to this. An idol can be a belief or worldview or philosophy. That allows our conscience to feel guilt free while blatantly breaking God's commands. What about naturalistic atheism? Why are so many young people adopting atheistic beliefs? Well, this is my guess. If there is no God, then there is no one we're accountable to. Want to fornicate? We're just animals anyways. We're postmodernism. We've talked a lot about postmodernism up here. It's the philosophy that more than even naturalistic um, atheism that our country and civilization has adopted. Which says there are no absolute truths. You can't know anything for sure. The statement within itself is stupidity. There are no absolute truths. Is that absolutely true? It doesn't make any sense. It's absurdity. And they're okay with that. Our country and civilization is okay with absurdity. I think the motive behind this philosophy is is this. There are no absolute truths. Therefore, there is no truth. Objective morality. There are no rules outside of us that that demand us to listen to them. We only have subjective morality. Morality is relative. Meaning you get to make up your own rules. Your own commands. Fornication may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. You know, I've never heard that. Because fornication has such, a, such a, a bad sound to it. But I've definitely heard this. Premarital sex may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. Think about this. Secular colleges preach these two worldviews more than anything else. I believe both of them are religions, and secular colleges preach these religions and it's not by chance that when you go to colleges, you find masses of mouths of drunkenness and fornication. Ideas and philosophies have consequences. Romans one twenty one says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, just like all our colleges, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for this is my interpretation, man made philosophies that allow carnal behavior. And you know what? It's not just the college dorms that this happens. Right? Every time we sin, we're exchanging the glory of God for something. For an idol. We are worshiping something more than we have worth in God. It may be comfort, maybe pride of life, it may be lust of the flesh, it may be man's approval. One commentator said this idolatry is having any false gods, any object, idea, philosophy, habit, occupation, sport, or whatever that has one's primary concern and loyalty. To any degree that reduces one's trust in and/or loyalty to the Lord. John Calvin said: man is an idol factory. We just produce idols left and right. And therefore, we need an intercessor, we need a mediator. We have rebelled against the holy God, we need a savior. And so did the Israelites. The fourth part of this sermon is the intercessor. Look at Exodus chapter 32, verse 7. God made a treaty with Israel. God gave the commands of the treaty. Israel blatantly sinned. And this is where we're at in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God says, I'm going to destroy Israel and make a great nation out of you, Moses. talk about the humility of of Moses. It's it's talked about in the Bible. You'd be tempted to be like, yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, these people aren't just a pain to, to God. They're a pain to Moses, too. Look at verse 11. But Moses. There's a lot of that word in the New Testament that we see. And it's a beautiful word when we see it. Usually but God. In this case it says, But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, who you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and you shall inherit it forever. God destroying them will go back on your promise. The covenant, the promise you made to Abraham. What would the world say? What about your name? What about your glory? Verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Most of you are probably reading the NASB. I'm reading the ESV. Pastor Brent preaches out of the the NASB, and this is what it says in the NASB, verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he had, or which he said he would do to his people. This verse has always bothered me. Did God truly change his mind? Can God change his mind? If we only had this passage or this one verse, we would have to say yes. Thankfully, we have the rest of Scripture. And a hermeneutical uh, principle that we need to adopt of being good students of the Scripture is we need to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. We need to take the majority of Scripture, the clear passages in Scripture, to interpret the obscure portions of Scripture. And it is very clear throughout all of Scripture that God is in control. He knows the future, and he's directing events, even the smallest details of all the historical things that happen. He's directing them. Nothing surprises God. So no, God doesn't change his mind. R.C. Sproul, talking about this, says, Moses' intercessory prayer itself was also a part of God's will and purpose to show his grace. But the effectiveness of Moses' intercession can only be described by characterizing the Lord in human terms. He changed his mind about the harm he had threatened. Theologians call this the anthropomorphic language, or call this anthropomorphic language, meaning it's a description of God in human terms or human characteristics. Change his mind is a human characteristic. We change our minds. The anthropomorphic language is to show us that God can and does change in his actions and emotions toward men when given proper grounds for doing so. So what can we learn from this? I've heard this passage used time and time again to say, well, we can learn that prayer matters. That's true. It's amazing that God listened to a man, and God listens to men. But I think we can learn something deeper. This passage has always bothered me because why word it this way? Why use anthropomorphic language? Why say God changed his mind? To answer this, we have to grasp an understanding, a theological understanding of the term typology. Pastor Brent used it last week and talked about 10 different types in the Old Testament that point to something in the New Testament. You've got to understand that Hebrew writers, the authors of scriptures, believed and understood God to be 100% sovereign and in control of everything, even the minute details of history. And many times in his sovereignty and control, he would work out situations, historical events, true events, things that happened, to point to something else that would happen in the future. Pastor Brent pointed to ten of these last Sunday. One example was a Red Sea crossing. I mean, God, in his sovereignty, in his control, leads the Israelites into a corner. They didn't go by land. They went to the sea. Then hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would send his army, the most powerful army in the world, after Israel. Any part of the sea had Israel walk through it on dry land and destroyed the army. We find out later that this points to spiritual salvation. It's a true historical event, God in control, working everything out to point to something else. Well, why don't you do me a favor? Turn to Psalms 106. We've been talking about this Psalms for a little bit. Starting in verse 19. Verse 19 says, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Wonderful works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Verse 23. Therefore he, this being God, therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen one. That just jumped out at me when I read that. Messiah means anointed one or chosen one. Christ is the Greek word for that. It means anointed one or chosen one. Listen again. Had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach... Before him. Breach is a military term. Someone or something that stands in between a wrath of an army and the people in danger. When you put this together, it says this, Therefore he, being God, therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses was a type of Christ. God set up all the circumstances so Moses would come and intercede for Israel and stand in between God's wrath and Israel to point to Christ's intercession for us. God's wrath was ready to be poured out on Israel, just like God's wrath was ready to be poured out on all of us. It was not for Jesus. God's chosen one, standing in the breach to turn away his wrath from destroying us. Exodus thirty-two fourteen uses anthropomorphic language to show us that one day a true and better Moses will come that would not only stand in between the wrath of God and man, but one that would actually endure the wrath of God for man. This is amazing. I mean, the consistency of Scripture is amazing. The connection of the Old Testament pointing to the New Testament is amazing. I'll tell you, every time I study a portion of Scripture that... that that's hard for me to understand. I come out on the other end of it being one of my favorite scriptures. And this is one of them. The meta narrative of scripture is consistent with 40 different authors, 66 different documents, over thousands of time periods, different cultures, different so- uh, social uh, statuses for the authors, different languages, and yet completely consistent. Exodus, Psalms, New Testament. Be amazed. But also realize this this is our story. Our treaty. God made us. We owe him everything, he owes us nothing. Our command worship him for what he's worth. Our sin, we worship other than God, namely ourselves, which is equal to hatred of him. Our intercessor, Jesus our only hope, who stands in the breach of wrath in us. And only if you repent, turn from your sins, and put your trust and faith in Jesus, will you be saved from that wrath. Here's the deal. If you're in here this morning, and and this is new to you, you never heard this, if you don't put your trust and faith in Jesus... There is no one standing in the breach. That wrath is coming for you like an army's wrath to a defenseless people. Put your trust in him. Repent from your sins. Do that now, before you leave this room. I'd love to talk with you. Pastor Brent would love to talk with you. Find someone to talk to it about it. But here's the deal what is Moses' role? in the meta-narrative of Scripture, in the big picture of Scripture, the large story of Scripture. Moses' role is to point to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Our need for a medi- medita- mediator, our need for a Savior. I want to end where we started. Hebrews 3, 1-6 says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. Let me pray. We'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you. We have sinned so badly, our sin is so deep that we don't even realize how badly we've sinned. We have to be told. We have to have the law to expose our sin as we try to keep it. God, help us to realize the true position we are in in front of a holy God, and also help us to realize the love of that holy God to send his Son to to die for us, to stand in the breach of your wrath and us. God, be with us as we contemplate that, as we think about that, as it pricks our heart, Lord, to to worship you fully, Lord. If there's people in here that don't know you, God, I pray that you you tear their heart. Make it a, a heart of flesh. Help them understand that you're their only hope. Your your son's death is the only only hope of salvation. For those of us that are Christians in here, Lord, that know you, that know this gospel, that trust in this gospel, help us to trust in the gospel daily. Help us to turn to your son daily, repent daily, and live a life of gratitude and thanksgiving for what your son has done for us. I thank you for your word and how amazing it is, how amazingly consistent and connected. And God, help us to be in awe of it. Just thank you for this morning. Be with us right now as we go our separate ways. In your son's precious name, amen.